Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, your weekly libertarian podcast that just two weeks from now is going to tape a live evening episode in Manhattan, New York. Go to reason.com slash events and act while supplies last. I am Matt Welch, joined per tradition by Nick Gillespie, Peter Suderman, and Catherine Mangue Ward. Happy post-Easter and Passover, friends. Howdy. Hey, Matt. Happy Monday. Uh, do you guys want to do a little bit more chatter because my windup is a little bit long? tonight so okay everyone have a good holiday go to hell matt <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> speaking of culture wars uh we're going to uh wade into some of this past week's very messy political polarization here in a moment but first, a word from our sponsors at Donors Trust, the principled and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. Friends, left-wing mega-donors are shoveling money into pet projects that don't reflect American values. What's more, lawmakers continue to push bloated big government policies like so-called student loan cancellation and other programs that will inevitably raise prices and fail to reach the people they are meant to help. All is not lost, though. You can help turn the tide with a charitable giving account at Donors Trust. Donors Trust is a refuge from the storm of harmful, progressive philanthropy and big government wheeling and dealing that's hurting our institutions and, more importantly, our loved ones. Donors Trust helps you maximize your giving while minimizing your tax liability, whether it's defending free speech, empowering entrepreneurs to offer educational alternatives, or fighting green energy extremists who want to consolidate power and raise prices on individuals and families, Donors Trust is the charitable giving account provider for you. Visit www.donorstrust.org reason to learn more about how Donors Trust can minimize your tax liability and maximize your giving. One more time, that's www.donorstrust.org reason. Go there today. You'll be glad you did. Okay. American politics seems particularly charged up and weird this week with multiple fronts open to the culture war, uh, some of them quite complicated to unpack. We're going to start with the perennial topic of abortion, which threw off all kinds of news over the past seven days. First, on Tuesday, liberal judge Janet Protoshowitz. I'm just going to say that's the pronunciation. One election to the Wisconsin Supreme Court by double digit margin, thus tipping the balance of that body to left leaning judges. The campaign issue was abortion because ever since the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, Wisconsin reverted to an 1849 law making it a felony to perform nearly all abortions. That has been challenged in court and by a statewide referendum. All of that will eventually be adjudicated at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And so this swingiest of swing states uh, swung control of its judiciary to the Democrats. And by the way, judges shouldn't be elected. Then on Good Friday, no less, Nick Gillespie, we had two different district court rulings having to do with the Food and Drug Administration's longstanding approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone, also known as the more easily pronounceable RU486. Uh, the first ruling, written by a single well-known anti-abortion judge in Texas, declared that the FDA should not have approved RU486 way back in 2000. 
and attempts to order a suspension. The second, coming from Washington State, basically enjoins the FDA from altering the status quo. As reasons Jacob Sullum and Elizabeth Noel Brown have both previously noted, RU486 is the practical ground on which statewide abortion restrictions are currently evaded because the FDA in 2021 made permanent a COVID-era rule allowing for shipments of the drug by mail after a telehealth consultation with a doctor. Uh, some recent headlines on Friday's dual rulings, two wrong Mifepristone court rulings in one day by Jonathan Adler over the full conspiracy and uh, the Tooch, J.D. Tuchili, the rattler. Uh, the abortion debate is messy. Two lawsuits against the FDA may make it worse. And let's just throw another one by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Dueling decisions leave abortion pills fate uncertain. The last bit of abortion related news before I stop jabbering. The Florida Senate last Monday approved a six-week abortion ban, which could go on Governor Ron DeSantis's desk as soon as this week. Current law has the legal cutoff limit in the Sunshine State at 15 weeks. DeSantis, obviously the main GOP presidential challenger to Donald Trump at this time, has said previously that he backs a six-week ban. Catherine, relieve us from the mansplaining. What do you make of this mess of abortion news? It's a mess. And uh, it was a very predictable mess. Right. So um, this was this was the inevitable consequence of Dobbs. Uh, the Supreme Court chose this. And here we are. Um, the Supreme Court is going to have to rechoose this over and over and over. Um, everyone's incentive is to send this question and all related questions back to the Supreme Court as soon as possible. Um, Jonathan Adler at the Volokh Conspiracy, whose headline you quoted, has, I think, uh, very good posts on this in general. He um, he says, listen, the legal reasoning, the legal grounds on which both of these circuit court cases stand are pretty shaky. Um, and one of them, the second one to come out, also isn't very clear on some of its reasoning. Like maybe, I don't know, they rushed it out to go ahead and establish that conflict. <laughs> Um, which is a great like, you know, future historians will be like, perhaps the, uh, you know, the legal reasoning isn't here because the case was less. No, it's clearly just like a bureaucratic matter. Um, always assume that it's bureaucratic. Um, these, this is us playing out the incentives that the court set up. And um, I did want to just point to one thing in the uh, the Florida legislation that I thought was interesting. Um the the proposal, the six week proposal does still contain some exceptions for up to 15 weeks, which, as you said, is the current law. The exceptions are now rape, incest and human trafficking. What? Which to me is the giveaway that this is. I mean, I have, I have no reason to doubt that DeSantis has a principled pro-life view. Um, I think he's been pretty consistent on that. But this is the giveaway that this is, in fact, about culture, you know, culture war point scoring and projecting who DeSantis is as a candidate into the country on an ever amplified scale. Um, there is nothing that would happen in the context of human trafficking that isn't already covered by existing abortion law. Um, and to include it in there is just to signal priorities that are extrinsic to this very, very important issue that we shouldn't be muddying. I'm surprised there uh, wasn't a carve out for victims of of grooming. And like fentanyl somehow. Yeah. yeah. Disney, yeah. Disney productions. <laughs> if the abortion happens in Reedy yeah. Creek, does DeSantis still have yeah. jurisdiction? Uh, Nick, uh, Politico has a headline up. Uh, 
that abortion was a 50-50 issue. Now it's Republican quicksand. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that should be kryptonite, right? Uh, but I don't uh, know. Quicksand, it, I like. You know, uh, okay. we don't we don't see much about quicksand anymore. It was Matt. It's I'm true. sure you had many nightmares about wandering into quicksand as a child. I certainly absolutely. Did. It was everywhere. Uh, so is that? Do you think that take is right? Do you think Republicans deserve it? If it is right, are they the dog who caught the car with the Dobbs decision? What's your analysis? Uh, well, first off, abortion was not a 50-50 uh, issue. And what they were talking about there was more like, how do people identify as pro-life or pro-choice? One of the uh-huh. things, uh, and I, I had a an article and a video about this a year ago, roughly when the Dobbs decision came down. Abortion had been pretty much settled uh, in public opinion from like the early or the mid 70s, right after Roe v. Wade until the current day. Most people wanted abortion to be legal in some or all cases. Uh, A very small minority wanted it to be illegal in all cases, which are the people who are running the show now, the Republicans. And um, if you look at Gallup uh, in 2021, uh, it asked, were you satisfied or dissatisfied with abortion laws? 33, a third of the country in 2021 said they were satisfied with laws. Uh, 26% now feel that way. The people who want, who are dissatisfied and want it stricter has dropped from 27% to 15% a year after the Dobbs decision un- unleashed a bunch of legislative action. The other thing that's really interesting is that everywhere where uh, abortion laws were put up to ballot initiatives uh, to make it stricter, they lost. This is the the legal changes are the work of a group of almost exclusively Republican, hardcore Republican conservatives who are dramatically out of touch with where the country is, and they are actually sparking a, a movement towards loosening of abortion laws. Um, and I, uh, you know, regard, you know, we, d- we don't necessarily want to talk about this in terms of public opinion stuff. I think uh, abortion, certainly before quickening or viability, which was the um, uh, was the the legal status or the, the controlling legal concept in Casey before Dobbs overturned Roe, which gets a little bit complicated. I mean, I think there is absolutely nothing wrong morally with a pre-viability abortion. Um, and Republican conservative Republicans all over the country are forcing that issue in a way that is not only wrong, but is going to be disastrous for them in, you know, in electoral politics. Um, so they deserve what they're getting. Uh, Peter, I'm giving you two doors. Uh, one door is uh, you're from Florida, Ron DeSantis, 6% or six week abortion. Uh, what the heck is going on? And does that affect his uh, uh, national political standing in your mind? And door number two is just uh, weird state uh, level lawsuits at the FDA. Is that normal? Uh, let's start with the second one. The crazy thing about the uh, Texas lawsuit and the, uh, the the Texas ruling is that the argument there was basically that the FDA approved a drug too fast. That they were like, you know, we, they actually like a, a lot. The, and this was the conservatives making this case. The folks who normally yeah. are like the FDA is a bureaucratic organization that is dragging its feet, that has all these processes and all these rules. And you can't like drug, you know, all these drug companies that really just want to like produce life-saving drugs. They want to get their stuff through the FDA and the FDA just won't let them. It's hugely costly in time, uh, you know, and, and incredibly expensive. And like somewhat independent from the abortion specific uh, the, the abortion valence of this 
the drug part of this, the drug approval part of this is really messed up because because the argument is that the FDA should should be cracking down on drugs and just subjecting them to to a kind of bureaucratic oversight that uh, that would be, that would make drug development at minimum much more expensive and much slower. And that's not something that we want. Uh, and also, it's just wrong in this case. As far as I can tell, so yes, they did use a sped up uh, drug approval process. But when the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, which is a pretty good watchdog that is actually like pretty reliable when it comes to explaining whether or not bureaucratic agencies followed their procedures, the GAO released a report on exactly this argument in in 2008. And GAO concluded that FDA had followed all of their procedures, that they had exercised totally normal oversight uh, for the drug after after it uh, was um, uh, you know after it was approved, and that this that there was nothing amiss here. And so this is a this is a an almost entirely politically motivated argument that was then brought uh, uh, brought into court, you know, via uh, in a venue where they judge shopped. This is the other thing that we should talk about here is that the judge who wrote this ruling, um, you know, again, you can never say, oh, we, well, we know exactly what this person is motivated by. And you should stick with the text of, uh, in some sense. You should stick with the text of the ruling. At the same time, this judge is somebody who is a Trump appointee, who has a history of uh, affiliations with socially conservative organizations. And the groups that brought this case chose this venue in order to get this specific judge because they knew that this judge or that I shouldn't say they knew, but they had a strong uh, belief and good reason to believe that this judge would rule in their favor. And so we have a, a, a lot of kind of political motivations here um, uh, that I think are are, are unfortunate and are, you know, sort of... Uh, are, are not going to create uh, good incentives um, for drug development uh, going forward because this is just going to make the FDA process, uh, I think, I, I think that this is going to end up making the FDA process much worse um, in the long run. Catherine, you don't vote and um, part of your robot heart enjoys pointless political chaos, I assume. Um, can you imagine this uh, scenario by which DeSantis signs a six-week ban uh, Donald Trump, who enjoyed very unusually strong uh, support among evangelical Christians and what remains of what we used to call the moral majority, um, uh, attacks him for it as being too extreme. And then evangelicals deciding um, that they're going to back the thrice divorced Stormy Daniels paying off uh, candidate against the uh, actual anti-abortion candidate. Do you like all this or does it just fill your heart with dread? It fills my heart with dread. Um, yeah. I don't think the thing you described is at all implausible. <laughs> I, think that, <laughs> I think that's a fairly likely outcome. I don't think it'll be quite that direct because Trump does understand that he's on somewhat shaky ground on the abortion question with his core supporters. Um, Trump, sometimes Trump knows things like that and doesn't care and says the thing he thinks anyway, which is the part that my the chaos that my robot heart likes. Um, but I think that in this case, the people who have committed to Trump already know that he is not the banner carrier for the anti-abortion cause. Right. The, he that has always been like a squishy part of his um his platform so he to the appointed that he the been. supreme court judges that but uh, gorsuch that's always but the, gorsuch and co um and so yes but the, like he that, made dobbs possible he right? made dobbs possible and he will make he will make any further victories for 
the anti-abortion movement possible. Um, not just the Supreme Court appointees, of course, but also um, the many lower court judges that he appointed. And um, but I, I think I think DeSantis is you know, will have a stronger claim uh, in terms of his personal convictions uh, to being anti-abortion than Donald Trump can argue. Um, but like what has DeSantis done for abortion lately or for babies unborn babies lately? And the answer will now be this Florida bill, right? He will sign this Florida bill. And so he will have something he can point to, um, which will maybe even the score a little bit. There is a sense in which Trump is the perfect avatar for the right's current position on abortion because he is, how do I say this? He's not someone who digs into legislative specifics. And he's also not very consistent. And right now, the problem for social conservatives, for the sort of uh, pro-life uh, activist uh, world, is that they spent the last 50 years or so focusing on the courts. And that was their strategy. And what they didn't have was a plan for what happens after the courts give them what they want by striking down Dobbs. They didn't have uh, a, a sort of a, a system of, of uh, like, they, didn't, they hadn't pulled it for, for the most part. They hadn't written up the model legislation. They were just sort of like, well, we'll get there and we'll figure it out. And they are now figuring it out. And what they are finding out is that their preferred legislation is a huge political uh, anchor on the Republican Party. And it is going to be it, it, they are going to have to wrestle with this and figure out what they can do uh, in terms of enacting pro-life uh, legislation, enacting uh, um, abortion restrictions, because it's not obvious that they can keep getting elected if they keep doing things like six week abortion bans in most states. I think that they probably can at the at the state level. Uh, which is where this stuff is playing out. And, um, you know, the uh, thing to, you know, really focus on here is that the conservative, social conservatives have lost every culture war battle that they've ever engaged in um, effectively. And this is merely the most recent one. And they will drag down the Republican Party because they don't care about larger Republican goals. I mean, people who are fundamentally anti-abortion don't care about tax rates. They don't care about business regulation. They don't care about FDA regulation of anything. They are single-minded, um, and you know they're you know that's not always a bad thing, but it does mean that they are going to continue to push for six-week bans or complete bans in states where they can do it. And you know all of this is what triggered the Dobbs decision in the first place, and it is going to be an electoral loser because it is absolutely not where America is. And when people start to see this. They pull back and they're like, okay, this this isn't what we expected when we said that we were um, against abortion. Um, it did not mean that we wanted to criminalize all sorts of uh, activities that we could uh, change through moral suasion, which is actually true. And you know, one of the fantastic things about the past fifty years under Roe v. Wade was that the number of unplanned pregnancies and the number the the abortion rate declined significantly because women had more control of their reproductive uh, you know, cap capacity or whatever you want to call it. Um, and now this is not speaking to that. This is speaking to something else, which is talking about controlling uh, you know, ultimately female sexuality in a way that is so out of step that um, it will be a massive electoral loser, at, certainly at the national level. And it deserves to be. Nick, just a uh, 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 retort fact check. Did not they win uh, the culture war on abortion? That's what we're talking about, right? And, and it's one not might over. Also, 
Yeah, but it's, it's, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I you know Yogi I agree, Berra. but like when you look at every attempt, like and you know, and this is part of what conservatives do, you know, they don't actually expect to win; they expect to slow down, you know, momentum into the future. You know, this is uh, you know standing athwart history, yelling stop. Uh, but literally on every front, you know, whether it was de jure segregation, whether it was homosexuality, whether it was you know, uh, female so- social, cultural, and economic equality. Gay uh, adoption, but, gay yeah, marriage. It's, it's, they lose because all they are doing is trying to hold on to a past that has already fallen apart because it no longer speaks to where people are. And they're losing this battle, even as they've, you know, they won the Supreme Court case. This is something that, you know, is not going to be ultimately won in the courts. So I am probably uh, the most pro-life person on this podcast, uh, though I wouldn't quite use that phrase to describe myself. I'm somewhere sort of much more muddled and confused on on my actual position here. But I'm more sympathetic to some of the pro-life arguments than I think some of the rest of you guys are. At the same time, looking at this, it really strikes me that that one of the uh, the uh, that a useful analog is prohibition. And that this and that what what the uh, the Supreme Court's ruling last year did was it allowed a kind of it allowed for a prohibition because that's what this is uh, of that's what this this ruling from Texas is is a prohibition on uh, on a, a previously legal drug and one of the lessons of prohibition is that even when it seems popular up front as you are enacting it even when there is widespread agreement that oh this this alcohol is causing huge problems um in, in our society and it is you know it is a a source of moral rot once people experience the reality of prohibition it becomes obvious to almost everyone that it isn't working and it becomes politically unpopular that's what happened uh, with alcohol prohibition and i think it is already something that is happening uh, with abortion restrictions there is uh, one uh, area where democrats uh, and left leaners will say that the republicans have unequivocally won in the culture wars is on guns which is a good uh, way to transition to our second culture war episode of this particular podcast uh, last Thursday in Tennessee the House of Representatives there expelled two Democrats for taking part in a loud and messy protest inside the state house using bullhorns to shout stuff like no action no peace as a way of demanding gun restrictions in the wake of last month's awful uh, school shooting in Nashville. And even as I'm uh, saying this today in uh, nearby uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, um, there's been a a big uh, shooting at a bank uh, just today. Um, A third member of the so-called Tennessee Three protesters, and that's not Johnny Cash's backing band, um, narrowly missed expulsion herself. She happens to be white. The other two are black. Always helpful. Uh, Republicans say the very unusual move was necessary to maintain basic decorum inside the state house and compared the Tennessee three to January 6th protesters inside the U.S. Capitol. Many Democrats say the move is explicitly racist. Some call it redolent of fascism and all agree that continued inaction on gun legislation is unconscionable. Uh, Catherine Reason likes both the First and Second Amendment. Uh, what do we think about this expulsion? One thing that I've been really struck by in the conversation around it is the framing of 
Um, and actually, it matches up with what you were just saying, Matt. The framing of the Republicans as being sort of um, obstructionist in an unhelpful way, rather than what I think the reality is, which is that they represent a sincere disagreement about the appropriate legislative path going forward. Like there's this notion that like they're being bullheaded and if they just get shouted at enough or something, <laughs> they'll start, they'll move into action, right? They're, or it's not even bullheaded. It's like they're, be, they're being, um, they're just, they, they have too much inertia and they just need to be like nudged forward. That's not right. That's not the right way of understanding this issue. And I think it's, it exposes the reality, which is that, um, that there is, this is not a question of like trying to get action. Like if anyone who's ever met a human being in a disagreement isn't like, you know what really works? If you like shout louder, then people change their mind and do what you wanted them to do. Like that's not what this was about. And um, instead, it was about drawing national attention. Huge success. It was about, you know, painting um, the opposing party, in this case, Republicans, as backward and um, and unhelpful. But I just don't think that's a fair characterization. Like, it's a quite reasonable position to be like the things that have happened. Uh, the mass shootings are absolutely horrible and all of the policy proposals on the table from the Democratic Party are not the right approach. And to, we refuse to pass them. Like, that's just political disagreement. That's not some sort of like character flaw or, you know, something that can be shouted down. And the leads of many articles and the kind of opening monologues of many cable news segments have even even on the right have kind of granted this premise in a way that I, I find quite surprising. Like why? Wh and maybe it's because Republicans are feeling abashed. And so there aren't a lot of clear voices defending Second Amendment rights in this moment. But there should be. Nick, uh, speaking of shouting, I, I'm, uh, I'm reaching for my bullhorn, Matt, so that yeah. <laughs> I can make sure that you hear me loud and clear. So I can hear you, you uh, clear your throat even louder. Yes. Um, you uh, were paying keen attention to a little shout fest that happened with uh, Congressman Thomas Massey on Capitol Hill. Uh, what did we learn there? And uh, Representative Jamal Bowman of New York. Right. Uh, that, you know, uh, it, it was captured by a Hill reporter. Jamal Bowman was leaving the Capitol building uh, and was shouting about the Nashville shooting and the need to do something. Uh, Thomas Massey, uh, uh, you know, engaged him in, in a, a conversation or an argument about gun control. That's a radically different situation. Bowman kept shouting uh, and they weren't in session. They weren't in Congress. They weren't like discussing legislation in the chamber where you pass legislation. I mean, for me, this story is about process and you know what uh, to you know, kind of to elaborate on what Catherine was talking about, you know, if you if you bring a bullhorn to the legislature <laughs> and every time somebody starts talking, you shout out through it or you play, you know, one of the songs that are pre-programmed on something, of course you should be kicked out. I mean, that's absurd. And it's, you know, it's one thing if you're outside the building. It's one thing if you are protesting outside the building. But if you're doing that on the floor, of course, you're going to get canned. And that also explains why one of the, the Democratic protest assembly members didn't get expelled. You know, 
we have given up so fully on process in this country, uh, sometimes for understandable reasons, but this does mirror the January 6th stuff where it's like, if you get a bunch of blowhards who are upset at a particular decision that is made, and they decide to act outside of the normal structures for passing legislation or, you know, contesting elections and things like that, you know, like there are consequences to that kind of behavior. I don't think, you know, it's not directly analogous because the January 6th people, you know, you know, were not actually committing an insurrection. It was a riot. It was, you know, and, and they should be dealt with accordingly. But I mean, this shouldn't be a conversation. Um, you know, if, if a legislator won't actually follow the process by which, you know, that they were elected to do, I don't know. I mean, I just don't have any sympathy for that. Uh, Peter, uh, Jonathan Turley has a piece in The Hill uh, titled, I was screaming before you interrupted me. American politics has become amplified rage. What did you find uh, interesting about Turley's take? So that title is a, uh, a quote from Jamal Bowman from when he was uh, outside of the, the Capitol and uh, had his um, interaction, let's say, with Rand Paul. I, I think uh, Massey, Thomas, Thomas Massey. Massey, excuse me, with Thomas Massey, um, excuse me, Thomas Massey. Uh, yes, and he has a great line in that piece. Nothing says deliberative debate like a bullhorn, which is which is about <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, we have entered an era in which politics is understood by many of its um, followers and practitioners as almost entirely just a, a performance of outrage. And it is often a pointless performance, or at the very least, it's not in any way productive in terms of lawmaking, in terms of legislation, in terms of uh, debate that is designed to convince people. Instead, the point is to gain attention. And so while I know that we're supposed to you know, uh, be pro-social media on, on here, I do think that there are, um, I do think that there are, have been some negative effects in terms of social media style politicking and social media style discourse has now entered our state houses and it has entered our legislatures and people see see the the act of of doing politics not as an as something about as being organized around debating writing and passing laws and figuring out what's what's the right way to have a legislative process and and sticking to that instead they see it as basically smashing that that tweet button and getting all the likes and going viral because that's that's what this is it is it Do is you... that exact same impulse except it is done in meat space with a bullhorn Do you think that this is also uh like in terms of a longer term trend the thing that that always occurs to me is that this is the consequence of every single person in Washington running as an outsider, even the insider, insideriest insiders, right? If you're like, I'm a cool legislator, not like the other regular legislators, then you, you, you've already established that your terms here are, I don't have to follow the rules because I'm an outsider. But if literally everyone runs that way up to and including former presidents of the United States, <laughs> then there's no there there are no insiders. There are no keepers of the rules. There are no. Uh, and of course, the outsider thing is, you know, it's like whitewashing at most in many cases. But I do think if you kind of believe yourself on that front, this is the behavior you get. The I, I think that, it, stu that stood out to me about the two people who were um, who were expelled. Uh, we, obviously, a lot of attention has been paid to the fact that they were both black. Um, 
But what was more notable to me was that they were both quite young and quite new to politics. And they embody, I think, a, a new style of political discourse that is taking over that has uh, uh, that is present on our college campuses. I think often um, in many, unfortunately, right, Turley explicitly makes the case uh, in his piece that this is a scene that we see a lot on campuses where people are trying to speak and have reason debate and they end up being shouted down. We have certainly seen that sort of thing at Stanford and just many, many campus stories like this. And that style of politics, again, I don't want to say that anger and that outrage and that shouting has no place in American politics. I, I think Far actually, be it from you. Yes, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes shouting is appropriate. Sometimes it's just fun. Um, but I, I think that when you're bringing a, bill, a bullhorn into a state house and you know, you know that at the very best outcome of this in terms of, uh, in terms of legislation is that no legislation that you want to be passed will be passed and that the most that's going to happen from this is that you will make the evening news or you will make the, the rounds on, on cable news as a result of this. Is that we have to ask ourselves, is that what we want from politics? That is what lots of people want who are yeah. in politics. I mean, I, I think you're right to stress the youth. I'm reading a book uh, from 1980 called Great Expectations, which is about the baby boom generation entering the kind of halls of power. Um, and it stresses how, you know, the baby boom in the late 60s and early 70s practiced politics and it started on college campuses and in, um, you know, mass protests of the war and things like that very differently than the greatest generation or the silent generation. And then, you know, that is how you kind of get your foot in the door. You make a lot of noise and then you settle in and start doing stuff. I think that's part of what we're seeing here is that millennials and Gen Z are doing what they've been doing at college campuses and are trying to, you know, get in. We all know that, like, you know, when Democrats are in control of Congress, they do things a certain way, Republicans do others. Again, it's this absolute disdain for process as corrupt and corrupting and inadequate to the, you know, exigencies of the moment. Um, this is part and parcel of the long-term collapse of trust and confidence in institutions, much of which is well-earned because politicians have treated, you know, uh, procedure and process as completely, uh, you know, like arbitrary and useless if it doesn't serve their particular terms. What I think is really bad here is when you go back to the question of the Nashville school shooting, we don't know all that much about that. But in the other two major examples that preceded this, Uvalde, Texas and, and Parkland in uh, Parkland, Florida, what ultimately virtually none of the gun control legislation that's being discussed would have any effect on this stuff, but we're not talking about the massive, persistent, and ubiquitous failures of police, of law enforcement, of social workers, of teachers, all of whom had major touch points with the perpetrators of this stuff and did nothing and failed. And it's like, if we want to stop school shootings, uh, and obviously we do, there are things that we could be doing. And we're not because we're talking about this kind of stuff. Um, and that is just, you know, it's it's awful and it's disgusting and it's a real missed opportunity. I think in the Nashville case, the police acted with ways that at least preliminarily yeah. people were, were quite commend, commendable. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, reminder, we're going to go to our listener email uh, question of the week. Uh, email us your questions to roundtable at a reason dot com and you can include stuff like your social media handle which we do get here from probable romanian uh silviu tulbia 
who um, you can follow on Twitter at the S I L V S factor, the Silves factor. Silvio writes, hello, reason. I love your podcasts and content. Thank you for creating such a great publication. Normally wouldn't read this, but it's a pretty short one. I'm curious what the roundtablers views are on things such as corporate personhood, the tax laws surrounding corporations, the fact that corporations never die and the outsized power of corporations today. Why is corporate personhood necessary? Catherine. You know, I went Googling to see uh, what reasons recent commentary on the corporate personhood question might be, because I do feel like when I when I was a young libertarian, there was a lot of that. We talked about that a lot. And uh, the last mention that I recall was the Mitt Romney moment where he was like standing on a bunch of bales of hay somewhere, probably mm-hmm. Iowa, because that's what this country does. And he he kind of made the last stand for corporations or people too, <laughs> and uh, and lo and behold, that does seem to be kind of the last moment that a lot of this stuff was discussed. I retain a fondness for this concept, although I think, like many things, it is better understood as a metaphor than as a literal, factual claim. And uh, and I think that, you know, in the case of corporate personhood, the, the idea that we're trying to get at when we talk about this is are corporations a thing that we can kind of use, abuse and treat differently? Or do we need to keep in mind that it's just a bunch of people doing stuff together? And, you know, I basically hold the latter view. It's just a bunch of people doing stuff together. And so if we want to. If we want to, for instance, tax corporations differently, whether at a lower or a higher rate, we are going to nudge the fight about whether corporations are people in the direction of the outcome that the person arguing wants. So there is, for instance, a tradition of liberals arguing for corporate personhood with the theory that it will reduce special treatment of corporations, um, which I think is an interesting kind of little twist, and that arguably that is kind of the guilt, the original kind of Gilded Age conversation about this, um, there are elements of that when the railroads um, were getting many, many special benefits and treatments, um, would treating a railroad corporation like a person actually equalize the real treatment of real people in the eyes of the law is like a historical question that has been investigated. Um, so I do think corporations are like Soylent Green made of people and that that is probably a better way to talk about it. I think that um, people might soon never die and or AIs might be people soon and also corporations. And so I think that this conversation might dissolve into itself in a really interesting way pretty soon. And I am looking forward to that outcome. Nick, save us from Zoltan Istvan over here. Hey! Uh, uh, well. Yeah, I, all I was going to say is, you know, the the creation of a limited liability corporation so that when you you contribute to a business or start a business, you're not fully liable for everything that happens uh, as an investor is one of the things that created modernity and allowed us to become much more productive and to have a lot more stuff with relatively few negatives. So. You know, that's the kernel of corporate personhood. And it doesn't mean, you know, corporations don't get to vote. Corporations don't have to fight. You know, I mean, they're not persons. It's it's a way of talking about stuff. So 
I think, you know, looking at what corporations are um, and how it helps people be more willing to invest and try different things is really the most important thing to take away from this conversation. And by the way, corporations die all the time. Um, you know, it's yes, so true. corporations go out Just of business, out of biological causes. Yeah. Peter. Well, Catherine already stole my Soylent Green reference, so I'm going to have to go with an Onion article no. from 1998. That's which good. Is, That's fine. Uh, it was an op-ed that The Onion published, uh, America's Finest News Source. It's titled, I Just Love Corporations. And it's satirical, you know, because it's a satirical newspaper, except I actually do just love corporations. This, but unironically. Yes, totally un <laughs> unironically. Like, just just Google that article. That's basically my feeling about them. They're great. They provide us with stuff, uh, right? Like, you want a thing, you log into a web website, you press some buttons, and then, like, thing arrives. It's wonderful. Um, they, they provide us with services. I, the corporate personhood is often misunderstood because it is this it, it is often seen as this idea that man corporations are, are are for legal purposes just exactly the same as Matt Welch they're like a they're it's just a whole like individual person with all the rights no and it's just exactly what Catherine said is that because corporations are people doing things together those people are individuals who have rights and obviously they should just because you are doing things in concert with other people in a legally uh, uh, a legally registered form that we call a corporation you don't lose your rights that group of people does not lose their rights and so the, the corporate personhood is a way of thinking about individual rights when people are acting uh, in concert in a legally registered form with a bunch of other people and that's all it is I remember fondly my first press conference covering the Ralph Nader 2000 presidential campaign, which I was covering for workingforchange.com, the uh, short-lived website run by the Working Assets tele uh, Telephone Company. Uh, and uh, I was uh, uh, shocked, startled to and I like started run doing a little tally. Um, this is surprising to everyone um, to who knows me. I was just counting things, um, but of how many times Nader used as a uh, pejorative uh, the word corporate or corporations or whatever uh, some version of corporate. It was over sixty times. I think it was like sixty four times uh, he used that, um, and it was fantastical to me because you saw that a lot back then in the late 90s with the anti-World uh, Trade Organization protests in Seattle in 1999, which people have forgotten about, but are pretty interesting. Um, uh, 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 hard hats and turtles together at last. Um, uh, you have this sense in the way it's used in the Naderite way um, that corporations are mustache twirling, you know, monopoly players, that they're by definition, these profit seeking institutions. They're not. It just means you've incorporated. Reason is a corporation. And yes, OK, we like capitalism, but we're a nonprofit. The Sierra Club is a corporation, people. Um, and the question is, and the, the reason why we don't talk about this anymore, in addition to Mitt Romney being very embarrassing whenever he's near hay, um, is that Citizens United was decided. And uh, that was the uh, case. Um, that basically said that a incorporated group called Citizens United um, has uh, First Amendment rights 
to release and have have it legal to release um, a documentary it was hit actually piece to on advertise that even they to advertise had a documentary yeah uh, about Hillary Clinton um and so should the Sierra Club have the right to uh, as uh, as an organization to promote its views, you know, uh, X number of weeks before an election, if it happens to deal with a candidate. And the answer is obviously yes. Um, but people were using the corporate personhood argument against that, saying like, well, no, if you if you say yes, then you're making corporations into a person. So it's always interesting just in a similar way to how people use uh, trickle down economics only as a pejorative. I haven't heard someone, I mean, Suderman probably will, but uh, I've heard someone say I actually love trickle down economics in a good long time. Uh, corporate personhood is the same, is the same way. Um, I don't, you know what? We need to make corporations people. No, that's not it. It's that we think that um, it, groups of people, incorporated people, um, their activities should be subject to protections from the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment and other all kinds of nice amendments there. That's it. Um, so that's why it's necessary. I also think there's this thing, right, which is that by having the concept of a corporation to use in political rhetoric, it makes it easier to say harsh things about groups of people. Right. So Elizabeth Warren is the is kind of the heir to the Naderite rhetoric here um, that, you know, she wants to to, you know, punitively tax various corporations. And, you know, Warren is not too shy about saying, like, yes, because certain people deserve this treatment as well. But there are lots of other people who would like to join her coalition but need a little bit of rhetorical cover. Um, back during the days of the Social Security, when Social Security was up for debate, which, as we learned in the State of the Union, it no longer is. Um, there's a great Milton Friedman quote about, you know, when people say, oh, well, the corporation pays half of the Social Security tax. And he said, that's nonsense. That's bookkeeping. That's not economics. Right. And it's just like, that's right. Like, there's just over and over this like, well, it's OK if the corporation bears the costs of regulation or taxation or whatever. People bear those. People still bear those costs. And it's just like a way of attacking a group that sounds OK. All right. Uh, lightning round time uh, feels like 17 months ago, but it really was just last week, uh, Tuesday, that former President Donald J. Trump was indicted in a Manhattan court on uh, 34 counts of business fraud, all stemming from hush money he paid to adult performer Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about their liaisons. So let's go around the table, have each one of us pull out one thing from the indictment, the spectacle, the reaction that jumps out to you. Nick, you start. Uh, mine is, uh, I think that uh, serious uh, kind of court watchers or Trump watchers are already looking at what's brewing in Georgia, where there's a much stronger case that Trump tried to interfere with an election. The New York uh, charges are a joke, and everybody knows that. Uh, and you saw people at places like Vox and whatnot who are in no way sympathetic to Trump saying, what the fuck is this? Um, you know, so um, I think That's this- That's a paraphrase. Yeah. Now it, it might even be a direct quote. I'm it? not sure, you know, but, um, you know, I think the real question is, uh, you know, what's brewing in, in Georgia in particular? Uh, Peter, what jumps out at you? 
Uh, what jumps out at me is that this is at least implicitly the fulfillment of a kind of quasi campaign promise on the part of Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor uh, who brought these charges. He did not explicitly promise to charge Donald Trump with something, whatever I can come up with. But he promised a kind of accountability was the word he used uh, in a way that um, was widely interpreted and understood to mean that he would go after President, uh, former President Trump. Um, and I think. I, again, you know, you, you can't stop people from saying stuff like that. Uh, and in the end, people have, you know, you have to uh, let people say what they want and, and campaign the way they want. But that's a, it's kind of a gross form of politics of, in, you know, in which you strongly imply that you are going to go after a prominent former elected official from the other party as a campaign, um, as, as a, a, a part of your campaign. And also prosecutors shouldn't be elected. Catherine? I just really liked this quote from Ty Cobb, not that one, but the other one, a defense attorney uh, who represented Trump, I guess, during the Mueller investigation, um, who said, I think the Bragg case is the water pistol unnecessarily proceeding the <laughs> missile launching F-35 attack piloted by Jack Smith um, in reference to the election subversion allegations. It's a good quote. And I it's think he's quote. right. I like the specificity of the F-35 missile yeah, attack. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's it's the the visual of the super soaker as the F-35 like nooms in. It's very good. Wait, so uh, am I uh, against uh, it then? Because the there's F-35 also is a giant boondoggle. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it won't be really operational. But the other thing that's great that I've calls to mind the fact that Donald Trump uh, constantly suggests that Jack Smith <laughs> is a fake name. I mean, this. I mean, the, the thing about Trump is, you know, this gives him a huge new platform or, you know, a, a real kind of media role that he can bask in. But he's so bad. The more he talks, the more he makes it clear that he will never get more than 46 percent of the popular vote. Bold um, to pit a man named Ty Cobb against a man named Jack Smith in a fake mm -hmm. name allegation game. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um I uh, what jumped out at me uh, is the cleverness of a of a headline or a phrase by uh, our friend, at least my friend and Nick's friend, um, Eli Lake. I think he's our friend um, at, who uh, over at the free press called this fan service prosecution or fan service case. Uh, and yeah, there's something really the Mandalorian of prosecutions. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I was watching uh, because it coincided with some uh, crucial dishwashing in the Welch household. I was watching the uh, CNN and MSNBC coverage when the stuff was being uh, unveiled when they're covering the uh, the Bronco ride from the Trump Tower to downtown and every like the, the replaying uh, a five second walk in the hallway of the courtroom and analyzing what it meant that he had to push his own door. I'm not making this up, people. It was yeah. amazing. He was the, humiliated the, by that, Matt. Wasn't that the, the common this, rhetoric yeah. that it's like, uh, oh, my God, like Trump's inner circle is, and you could tell, is leaving like, him behind because they didn't hold the door open for him. They were analyzing what the look on his face meant. Uh, uh, I literally heard Jake Tapper, not not like the bad people, um, but the better of the people at uh, these places uh, say, you know, are the walls closing? <laughs> How do you say that without laughing at this point? Um, 
there's a lot of fan service journalism too, people. Um, Nick said, and he's right to point to, there's been a lot of skepticism about the case in Vox, uh, Jonathan Shade at the New York Magazine, a bunch of other places. Um, but there was a whole lot of like, oh, Alvin Bragg is a very serious person um, and just absolutely ridiculous. Try to read into the deep, dark thoughts of Donald Trump on cable news. There's a lot of fan service associated with news delivery about Donald Trump. And this is the beginning of what's going to be like four different trials, including rape. The civil rape trial that's coming down in just a couple of weeks. Um, this is what cable news is going to look like for the rest of the year. It's going the to rest be of our awful. Lives. The rest awful. of our lives. And, you know, but the flip, I agree with you, Matt. Uh, you know, this is fan service on CNN and MSNBC, et cetera. There's a lot of that on the right, too, who are oh, like, God, oh, yeah. this cinches the Republican nomination for Trump because the American people will be so outraged at this obviously fake prosecution. And that really misses the point. If we, you know, we started by talking about abortion, the reason why there's a reaction to attempts to, you know, really get rid of abortion is because most Americans have a more nuanced view. I think in this case, it will fire up certain uh, sectors of Republican kind of po political activism, but most Americans are going to walk away from this saying, like, this is a bullshit prosecution. But Trump, you know what? Like, I'm I'm done with this guy because he really uh, and I, I'm not saying that's good for DeSantis or anything. It's just Trump has not advanced his case in public life, um, you know, since becoming president. Like basically what he did, certainly with the advent of covid is he started making even his admirers wonder why they elected him. And that's only going to become more more true as these cases kind of go through the process. All right, let's go to our end of podcast, what we have been consuming in the cultural arena. I understand that we have a joint presentation here. So, Catherine, do you want to take Dungeons or do you want to take Dragons? Yeah. So, Suderman and I went uh, along with the rest of the Reason D&D &D crew to Nerd! see the Dungeons and Dragons movie, Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. And uh, I think that I don't speak out of turn when I say that we were delighted. We found it to be um, fan service, but the good kind. And um, and that, uh, you know, it was exactly what it promised to be, which was a very, very silly movie about a very silly activity, which is uh, adults pretending together and i is am not it, mad about it uh suderman is will, there I'm a sure, plot is there a plot on, hold your pants on gillespie um right. i'm sure suderman has a substantive riff what i want to actually speak about though is the place where we saw it the alamo uh draft house which is uh a glorious place where you can drink a beer and eat fried foods while watching your movie and all movies should be consumed in this way, I don't know what we are doing. Get it together, AMC. Even Schindler's List? Come on. Yes. Schindler's List I think List that's an overly they can, It could be themed if they want to serve matzo ball soup or whatever. The fish fry. Which, yeah, okay. you know, many of us had this weekend. It's delicious. Um, yeah. Just like want to make the case for more alcohol licenses in movie theaters. That's that's my libertarian takeaway from the Dungeons and Dragons movie, but... Suderman, you want to like talk about the actual movie? Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the phenomenon because I think the best <laughs> way to understand this movie so is that it's basically the passion of the Christ 
but for tabletop gaming nerds, right? And so in the way that The Passion of the Christ was a huge hit because it sold blocks of tickets to church uh, goers and Sunday school groups, right? And the idea was there's a built-in market of people who want to go see this movie together. That's also true of Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Amongst Thieves, because there are already people who gather once a week or once a month to play to play silly games with each other, uh, to enact their like weird little fantasy fantasies. I guess that's what they are, right? Like you're you're like you're a fantasy be, character in a fantasy to game. To be clear on on point though that they are satanists. Also also to worship well, they're Satan. playing right. a deadly Definitely game, right? They're uh, playing no, a deadly game. They is, don't understand. Just like uh, uh, that's I mean, the one of the great misperceptions about D&D is that it's uh, is that it's Satan worship and in fact it's uh, heavily based on J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, derived from a lot of the same mythology and has in uh, and, and that of course was infused with a, a great Christian sensibility. Um, and I think you could argue that uh, that a lot of that was then moved into D&D. It's just that instead of uh, being explicitly religious, it was transmuted into a kind of um, stats and dice rolling system, right? And sort of it's a secular way of, uh, of getting to the same sort of thing. This is me um, slinking away to erase the pentagram <laughs> that I drew in my house for our session tonight. But it really leans into the sort of community fun aspect of, D- of Dungeons and Dragons, the silliness of it, the humor, um, the ways in which people sort of uh, reveal themselves uh, as they play the game. And so if you play Dungeons and Dragons, if you play these games, especially with the same group for a long time, you will re- you will learn something about yourself and your friends and the way you interact, even if you are not playing yourself necessarily, even if you are playing a character. And so in this movie, you will see some of the, the same sorts of interactions that you likely have seen at a Dungeons and Dragons game if you've ever played one. And so you will recognize yourself and your friends in these adventures. They will become... Uh, they, they will... They, they will become kind of meaningful to you, even though they are not your adventures, because you see, oh, you know, there's the treasure chest with the mouth monster that almost got me once. It's a good time, folks. Nick, what was your mouth monster of the week? <laughs> oh, so I uh, stumbled across it. I'm not even sure how it happened. Uh, I think it might have been my girlfriend, uh, but... I watched Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is a 2004 six-episode series that was created by Richard Iotti, who is best known for his uh, uh, helping to write and act in the IT crowd, the uh, British TV show, and Matthew Holness, who's another uh, British uh, uh, kind of comedian and actor. And it is, it's from 2004, but it is about a 1980s uh, horror series that was uh, uh, produced by Garth Marenghi, who is a recurring character who's like a shitty, a shittier Stephen King, who uh, writes and acts in his own kind of Twilight Zone uh, show that's set at a hospital. Um, if you like, uh, Matthew Barry is in it uh, from Toast of London and What We Do in the Shadows. And uh, this is free on Pluto.tv, which is one of the saddest streaming services of all. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is one of the fucking funniest TV shows that has ever been made. And however down you are in a given day, you will watch all six episodes in rapid succession and feel better about your place in the universe. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Uh, two points. One is I didn't recognize a single thing that you just said. <laughs> not a person, not a show, not a streaming service. And while that all- is always my reaction to Nick's recommendations. Yeah, it is no, notable no. that it was yours this time as well. It uh, is and, so good. 
and it secondly, so it's obviously a porn. Um, no, but with that title, um, it is just so no way that- funny. And you know, last week I, I think know. I talked. Is it about music or no sports? No, it's it's about a it's about a, <laughs> drugs. It's about a surgeon who uh, it works at a hospital that has been uh, is, that is on like a portal to hell. So it's constantly has recurring kind of demonic things going on. There's an episode oh, that's because where they were playing Dungeons and Dragons in the break room, something like that. But there's an episode, for instance, about the Scottish mist, which takes over and is seeking revenge on Garth Marenghi. Um, is it gender and swapped Buffy the Vampire Slayer in a hospital? It is, it is so goddamn funny. Uh, it is peak early 2000s uh, TV uh, satire metafictional because it's a it's like um years ago i recommended comrade detective it is like comrade detective but for 80s crappy uh british science fiction horror stuff so good so very uh, very good just speaking of satan whatever noise that suderman made about a minute and a half ago uh the the dean scream from the bowels of hades was uh, particularly noteworthy um speaking of uh, religion uh i did something uh recently uh last week that uh i've never done before which is participate in a passover seder that's fun yeah. it's that's fun. Was like good. dungeons and dragons all, the only thing like missing was a dodecahedron. You kind of go die. around, you each say a part, yeah. you reenact an epic adventure. It is like Dungeons and Dragons, but the it's food really is fun. better. I don't want to give away, you know, uh, <laughs> too many family story, secrets. I think people know how it ends. <laughs> uh, but you haven't lived until you've seen uh, Nick Gillespie recite some of the uh, Haggadah. That's what it's called, the the Haggadahs. Uh, that is uh, that was really moving, uh, and. Uh, it turns out they're still they're mad about the whole Egypt thing. That like comes up a lot. Really, really mad about Egypt. Um, really, uh, what what a beautiful thing. I recommend everyone go to a Passover seder. And ours was led that, by that some, was uh, interesting too, Matt, because it was led by Israelis, kind yeah. of like secular Israelis, um, which is a different beast than you know religious uh, uh, Jews. It was yeah. fascinating. It was great. Wonderful. We did two seders, uh, as many Jews do, and uh, our second one we did um, dealer's choice seder participation. So each person so went like on the you table ended up with a mezcal negroni. E- yeah, <laughs> every person we went on the table, and each person just we just did the part of the seder that we like. Um, the irony here is that the word seder literally means order. Like we really did it exactly <laughs> wrong, um, but it was kind of great because we ended up hitting all the highlights and actually telling the story in a way that um, the children at the table, among others, were much more engaged in than like slogging through another singing of Dainu off key. Um, so I kind of recommend Chaos Seder if uh, if you want to up your game later. What's the uh, twofer uh, Seder uh, concept? So um, in America, there's this problem, which is like you're supposed to have your Seder on the first night, but it's the first night in Israel. And so, you know, is so we it, the reason we have two here is just to cover your bases, to make sure that you are, in fact, fulfilling your obligations to have the Seder on a particular day, since that day is halfway between the days here. So you double up. Oh, also, it's fun. So you, but it's like a classic, like it's a classic, like somebody thought really, really, really hard about the letter of the law and came up with this absolutely non-commonsensical solution. Like, 
Jews are great at that. I think is one of the reasons why Christianity took off, right? Because it stresses the spirit of the law. Not yeah, the letter it's like of you know what? Just so it's like yeah, be happy Jesus uh, was in your heart. Pick a, you know, pick a day. yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing I would say for uh, Passover and whatnot too is if you're a Christian, you should definitely check one out because you know, and this is like not news, obviously, but um, it is a, a stark reminder of all of the major themes of Christianity. And what Jesus, you know, obviously it coincided with Easter, uh, and what Jesus was here to do. It's uh, it's really an amazing kind of cultural tradition and a, and a living, breathing one. Um, just fantastic. And one about right, how important it is to be free. Exactly. No more enslavement. Um, that's all of the uh, dice rolling Satanism uh, that we have time for uh, in this podcast. Thank you for listening to it. Uh, again, uh, we're doing it live in Manhattan, the Village Underground. Go to Reason.com events. It's April 25th. Uh, that's basically in like 15 days, dude. Uh, Nick Gillespie, are there other Reason.com events that people should be aware of? It seems like there's a lot these days. Yeah, and there's a uh, uh, Reason Speakeasy, a live taping of the Reason Round, uh, Reason Interview podcast on May 1st with uh, Ben Smith, late of the New York Times, BuzzFeed News, Politico, the New York Sun, the New York Observer, uh, who has a fantastic new book, Traffic, that's coming out right on May 1st. But if you go to reason.com slash events, you'll see all the information you need for all of the New York City events that are coming up. There's a Soho forum, also kick it around. That looks pretty good. And you can go to reason.com slash newsletters and sign up for the NYC events newsletter if you live in the uh, you know metro area of the greatest city on the planet. And uh, check out all what we're doing. Uh, yes. And if you uh, like our podcasts, uh, go to reason.com slash podcasts. If you'd like to give us money, go to reason.com slash donate. It's that simple. And we will catch you next week. Thank you. Unlike most board games you might be familiar with, role-playing games often use a 20-sided dice. Moss, yeah. I want to stop listening to this. I completely understand. <laughs>